Welcome to Carbon Times. With the UK hosting COP26 this year, the Carbon Times podcast has been developed to get the industry talking, to share journeys, and more importantly, share knowledge. Carbon Profile has sponsored this podcast to help their clients and the wider industry learn from each other and pull together to really push the decarbonisation of the UK. We are starting with what we know best, the real estate industry. With the UK government putting their 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution in place, Carbon Times will be running podcast series to explore the topics around the 10-point plan. In series one, we begin with greener buildings, with the objective to drive better building performance and move away from fossil fuels. We know that 80% of buildings in use today will still be in use in 2050, and that real estate accounts for 40% of the UK total carbon emissions. Each series from this podcast will explore topics taking the key goals of COP26 to form the discussion. The key goals being adaptation, mitigation, finance and collaboration. For the real estate industry, we will explore owning and managing property, green leases, tenants obligations, the costs and the impact on property prices. We have interviewed some of the best from industry leaders, regulation setters, companies that are leading initiatives and those driving programs to work towards the current key dates associated with the Greener Buildings Plan and the drive to net zero carbon emissions. We want to provide insight across our industry, highlighting the challenges and the ambitions. We will highlight practical examples of how industry specialists are driving change across their sphere of influence. We all have a responsibility to collaborate and develop a world-leading approach to the decarbonisation of the spaces and the places we use. We all want the uh, government to take heed of our recommendations. They need to act on it, but also to act on it fast. So it's not about saying, okay, we just keep deliberating over it over the next one year, two years. They are by law bound to try to get to this target. It's got to be done in a fair and positive way. So if we don't act now, we're just going to run out of time and there won't be a future for any of us. And if we can show that we can do it, then perhaps others will follow. I think somebody has to be a leader. Welcome back to the Carbon Times podcast. This is episode six of series one, where we are going to examine the outcomes of COP26 and look at the implications for real estate. We're lucky today to be joined by three team members from McFarlane's. Welcome, Rachel. Would you just introduce yourself for us, please? Thanks, Paul. I'm Rachel Richardson. I'm head of banking and finance policy at McFarlane's and I'm a debt finance lawyer there. I'm also co-chair of the firm's ESG working group and co-chair of the firm's ESG steering committee, as well as having a particular area of focus in green and sustainable finance. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Nicole? Nicole Mitchell. I'm a member of the private equity real estate team at McFarlane's. I've recently been through a phase of helping clients consider their implications of SFDR for their investment funds. So that's been the, the most immediate impact of ESG for me. And I'm a member of our cross-functional working group we have at McFarland's focusing on ESG. Um, So work alongside Rachel and and Becca on that. Excellent. Thank you very much. Welcome. And Becca? Uh, Rebecca Delaney. I'm the senior knowledge lawyer in the commercial real estate team here at McFarland's. 
Obviously, ESG COP26 are key overarching interests for our clients, and I'm a member of the ESG working group within the firm. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. I'm sure you're all very busy people, so we're really grateful that you're able to join us. So we're at the end then, COP26. It's been, it's come, all the discussions have taken place. And I think it's generally accepted that there's been four key areas or four key topics that have come out of COP26, which are very relevant to all of us that work in the real estate world. So I would love to explore your opinions around those particular pieces. So first of all, it was reported that access to capital and debt is going to become far more dependent on net zero carbon planning. Rachel, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, one of the highlights from COP was the announcement of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, as it's affectionately known. The headline number for that is huge, 130 trillion US dollars of funds under management as the collective number for all of the institutions who have signed up to that. That includes a range of different financial services entities, so banks, fund managers, insurers, etc. What I think is interesting about that is that lots of these entities have already signed up to the precursors to GFAN. So we already had an alliance for the insurance industry for net zero, an equivalent for asset managers. And this is the culmination of all of that. And I think what's really exciting is actually what's different about this is the collaboration of all those different sectors together. So for the first time, the insurance industry is also working with the banking sector, is also working with the asset management industry. And it's that collaboration that I think is different about this. And I think in addition, there will be more robust plans and interrogation of people's commitment to net zero. And there'll be a bit more asked from them in terms of GFANS as opposed to what they were previously a signatory for. But in addition to all of that, these fund managers, these insurers, these banks will now be going out trying to transition their portfolios, which means, for example, banks will try to do more green lending, more sustainability linked lending. And we'll see, in particular for my area, more green finance and sustainable finance coming through into the deals that we do with our clients, which we're already seeing actually to a certain extent. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Rachel. And from an equity perspective, we're certainly seeing a lot more real estate investors looking to allocate to products either with, you know, ESG characteristics or even an impact theme. And that's sort of tied in nicely with the SFDR. So looking at the European regulation around um, sustainable financial disclosures, and that's going to be replicated in the not too distant future in terms of UK law. So we're certainly seeing a lot more sort of capital looking to be deployed into this space. And I think to Rachel's point, a key theme is a lot more sort of interrogation of those products. So people are really sort of pushing them and testing them and and asking far more sort of significant questions and becoming quite sort of alive to greenwashing and challenging it. And I think that's a theme, as Rachel said, that's also sort of carried over into the real estate debt space as well. Thank you, Nicole. You both mentioned a a word there that's come up in every podcast that we've done to date, and that is around collaboration. And it's really interesting to see that that collaborative piece around the sustainability and decarbonisation agenda seems tighter or closer than it has been previously. Would you agree with that, Rachel? 
Yes, I would. I think I'd actually go back before COP a little bit to the IPCC report from August this year, so before COP. And I think that lots of our clients in the asset management industry in particular have been looking at this and knew the extent of the problem far before now, you know, looking back years and years and years. But I think some people really paid attention to the IPCC report in the way that they hadn't before. And so I noticed at that particular point a real shift and the focus moved from, oh, we have our individual plan to let's talk to each other. And I've noticed that people who in the past might have been competitors with each other, suddenly they lose that competitive edge because actually the goal is the same and people are willing to actually collaborate in the way that they weren't before. One point I make on that because I'm a lawyer and I have to, is that with all collaboration, there might be competition law concerns. And so it's just important to bear those in mind with collaboration. But I think You know, everyone is on board with that collaboration, regardless of sector industry. And I think that shift for some has happened quite a long time ago. For others, it's really been since the summer in that run up to COP, but but actually pre-COP, I think. And I think it's quite interesting in the real estate industry in particular, because it's an industry that there's so many different stakeholders. If you think around the, you know, the life cycle of an asset, and there's just so many different parties involved, you know, it's all about sort of interpersonal relations. And it's very sort of, I guess, idiosyncratic. And that's why most of us love working in the industry. But I think in the context of sort of bringing about a significant change that does pose quite particular challenges in terms of getting all of those stakeholders throughout the life cycle of an asset to work together. And, you know, there's been quite a few sort of interesting examples of late. You know, if you take, for example, innovations in the construction materials industry, Mm -hmm. you've had lots of examples about sort of fantastic materials and recycling, but then you have sort of insurers saying, oh, but, you know, we don't really know if that's insurable. Is that even usable? Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a fantastic example of how, you know, you can have all of the innovation you like in terms of construction materials, but if you don't bring along everyone in that sort of value chain and all of the stakeholders, it's kind of pointless. Uh, and that's just one very discrete example. I know Becca has spent a lot of time looking at those sort of issues in terms of construction innovation. And, but I think it's a fantastic example of how the whole thing falls over if we don't work very closely together. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Nicole. I think just with reference to insurers in particular, if insurers, for example, won't insure a material because it's new, emergent and innovative and unfamiliar, then the industry cannot or rather will not use it or the industry will shy away from it. And then if you don't have everybody along for the journey, you're sort of falling at hurdles along the way. And that can be an issue with existing materials such as timber, not simply emergent materials. There are also issues around reuse rather than recycling and trying to get insurers on board with that. They may be more comfortable with materials being recycled, but you know, if you remove a steel girder from one building and put it into another building, then perhaps insurers aren't as familiar with or yet comfortable with that position. And therefore, we need everybody in the chain to assess new ways of doing things in order to bring everybody along the same direction of travel. Yeah, I think some of those issues present excuses along the chain that especially with things like, well, we don't know whether it can be insured or those types of questions. So again, it just puts a ring around the fact that the manufacturers, the testers, the approvers, you know, the accrediting bodies like the BRE and, you know, all of those types of people, they need to be closer and they need to be working better together, really, in this fight to, or for us all to be able to achieve the common goal of decarbonisation, which 
in real estate is going to be a big challenge because and it, it does come back to finance, doesn't it? You know, a lot of the time it's around the issues of who will finance where and those types of challenges that will come as we move forward. Some of the statistics we'll come back to, I think, as we go along throughout this, but something that I'd like you to be mindful of going forward as we move through the conversation, which has just really come into my head, is around the fact that through some of the conversations that we've had, we've identified, and I think with a lot of the clients that you work with, they are big institutions, they're well-established, and that type of organisation has probably been planning for this change and, you know, for the last 10 years, you know, where, and then you've probably got 30% of people, owners, building owners that are catching up, they're getting there, they're putting their strategies and their plans in place. But there's a chasm there of like 50% where small property companies, you know, all of those bits that are left to get mopped up and they will come along. But at the moment, I can't really see how that's going to be driven. Rachel, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think at the moment, things like obtaining a carbon footprint report, the sort of advice that real estate managers need is still relatively expensive. And so if you are a large fund manager, that's something that you can absorb. These issues go to value and therefore, you know, value is a financial risk to you. It could also yeah. be uh, additive to value too. But if you are a smaller manager, you, you don't have the ability to absorb those costs in the same way. And obviously finance, you know, my area of expertise, debt finance can help fund some of this. But reality is, is that for real scale to get smaller managers and smaller operators of buildings along, costs will need to come down a little bit. And I think that they will. It's just you need the kind of early adopters and the innovators to come along, do a little bit of the heavy lifting and thinking, and then have that trickle down throughout the rest of the chain. I think we also need to bear in mind that, you know, real estate is not a homogenous asset class. You know, there's a real variation in experience across the sectors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you were going to make some generalizations, you'd say that certain sectors such as sort of logistics and, you know, BTR are well placed to create buildings from scratch that have a lot of sort of ESG considerations sort of factored into them and can get very quickly to sort of a, a net zero operational position. If you look at sort of other sectors, such as our own personal residential real estate, and for example, you know, the, the typical smaller lot size British high street store, there the challenges are far more acute. And I think it's towards that end of the market, where as you say, you know, we don't necessarily have large institutional asset owners who can put the funds behind it. That's where it's going to need more assistance and policy intervention. I think with one of the ways maybe that we'll see that change in the future will be with the big institutions making it easier, as you mentioned, Rachel, that, you know, like putting that initial investment in testing the processes, the materials, so it flows out and everything along that chain of consultancy then becomes more accessible for people at the lower end. Because I totally agree that at the moment, I think some of the advice that a small family investment company that's got 300 properties around the southwest of England, for example, for them to be able to access the type of advice that they probably need to be able to get where they need to be, it's probably too expensive at the moment. Yes. And as also as things become more embedded in the market and people become more used to concepts and de-risking, obviously it will then trickle down and it will be easier for the smaller fish in the big pond to be able to get on board with it. And I think a lot of this at a fundamental level centers around effective data collection at this stage in proceedings. So, for example, if you have the data collected on emerging technologies and they then move from being emerging to accepted technologies, that helps to limit the unknowns and testing can give insights. So we need to move sort of towards a risk-informed 
performance-based method of evaluating technologies, materials, processes, and also the general move towards standardization and embedding of metrics is going to help. Um, Rachel also already mentioned valuation. So in order to value and to rate sustainability, you have to have a shared and widely accepted and understood nomenclature and performance indicators. And until that does become embedded in the language of things like valuation, it's going to prove difficult in the shorter term for valuers, underwriters to attribute value to sustainability. And until this becomes a common language, it's not going to be able to filter down to the lower levels. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I mean, that has been the subject to a large degree of the UK Green Building Council net zero whole life carbon roadmap, which was something announced during COP. But in terms of looking at sort of very tangible steps that need to be taken across the sector and across, you know, different parties. So they have actions aimed at sort of all of the different stakeholders in the process, actions recommended for policyholders, et cetera. But to Becca's point, it really is about sort of establishing a carbon budget and trajectory through sort of embodied carbon measures measurement, using sort of widely understood embodied carbon assessment tools, you know, the publication of an embodied carbon benchmark, et cetera, um, really to help give that sort of common language and framework to the transition. Just before we move on, Rebecca, you mentioned data there, which I think is another key point around this, especially from a legal perspective, really, from that, you know, it's going to be a data first approach to all of this, because without the data, decisions can't be accurately made. When we spoke about valuation with a valuer from Mavis and Young, that conversation very much spoke about data and spoke to the importance of data. But again, goes back to a collaborative piece that the thought process being there, that if every time a building was brought to a standard or created or whatever it might be, if, it, if a digital twin of that building was also created that was accessible to all, that it would start making far more sense of everyone being able to collect the fact that this works in this scenario, in this circumstance, et cetera. You know, so that kind of performance data would become more readily available and accessible. Yeah, I heard a really sort of interesting presentation recently from a property manager who said, you know, property management historically was about sort of being in the boiler room and now it's about being a data scientist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. And, you know, we're starting to see that impact how we draft our sort of property management agreements and sort of asset management agreements in terms of the, you know, the importance and prevalence of capturing that data and using it. And it does, you know, occasionally, I'm sure Becca can talk to this in more detail, present some sort of interesting issues in terms of, you know, how that data is collected, what it's used for, et cetera, GDPR type considerations, and sometimes concerns between, you know, if you have a multi-tenanted building, sort of tenants being concerned about where their data is going and it being shared, et cetera. As you say, I think there really is sort of um, a digital transformation that's ongoing in terms of the industry. And it's having to change quite quickly in terms of the nature of, I think, sort of property management in particular. And data as well also feeds into sustainable debt products. So if you're a real Mm -hmm. estate manager with a sustainability linked loan, for example, you're required to report to your lender some sustainability objectives and how you're performing on targets that you've set for yourself. And to even be able to set yourself a target, you need to look back and see what you had previously to be able to know what an ambitious and meaningful target might be for you. So if you haven't started tracking any data, that sort of puts you way behind where you need to be to actually be able to set some targets for yourself and which can make things really difficult. So data is also really important when bringing debt into the conversation as well. And actually, you know, in terms of some of our clients who are investment managers, we've seen them in recent years starting to invest far more internally 
uh, in terms of their resources to have, you know, data scientist type teams, which, you know, five, 10 years ago would be unthinkable. Um, but if you think about it from their perspective, they're having to track so many different metrics under so many different categories. You've got, you know, you sort of regulatory driven metrics and requirements around sort of SFDR, for example, and you could have your metrics under your loan agreements, et cetera. You've got your property management type metrics. You may have particular metrics your investors require you to report. So you can see how this being a bit of a, you know, a sea change change in terms of sort of resources and the skill set that some of our clients need to sort of operate in the real estate investment management business. And the ideal scenario there is if you can get all of your data that's being collected by different people to be consistent. And that's one of the other peculiarities that's arisen with this area. You know, you've got lots of different regimes, some of them cover different things. And the government recently announced the ISSB that they are consulting on shortly next year, I think. And the intention there is to combine, to work with what's already there. So if you're already reporting under TCFD, they want to use that as a basis and add to that as opposed to starting from scratch. But we'll see how much they're able to collate and bring together what's there as opposed to adding additional requirements, which seems to be what's traditionally happened so far. There's always a new regime. There's always something else that you can voluntarily report against. I've had the challenge personally with clients, especially in the public sector. I found, well, it kind of went like a bit like a trend that all local authorities were declaring a climate emergency, but none of them really knew what that meant. So, you know, like from at that time, the organization that I was working with, what we were helping those organizations do is to roll back a little bit get all their data points in one place and create your baseline because that's the most important part up front is that to build your reporting, build your action plans, your future and all your decision making is to make sure you're starting from the right moment of truth and, you know, a a proper science-based target linked, you know, aspect that's going to actually make a difference and get you somewhere. So if we want to move on to carbon finance and the anticipation that there's going to be far more commitment clarity and coordination in the world of carbon finance. So two ways of pricing carbon, there's the emissions basis or the emissions route, if you like, which I don't think we'll spend any time discussing today because it's a whole subject in itself. And we could probably sit here for 10 hours just talking about that. But carbon taxes is the other one. And that's one that I think is quite important. You know, both mentioned at COP26, both important. What are your thoughts around that, Nicole? (laughs) My personal experience of a sort of carbon pricing within our clients has been that many of our clients, admittedly, the larger real estate developers and investors have been running for some time their own internal shadow carbon pricing and sort of operating self-imposed levies. So trying to sort of internally create, you know, the sort of issues we're discussing about in the wider market. I've heard some developers say when they're evaluating a project alongside build quality and time, the fourth metric for them has become carbon, which is, you know, a pretty interesting development. And also we're seeing sort of many investors running their own sort of net zero audits at the time of acquisition and that sort of thing and forming their own judgments as to how that should be reflected in the pricing of an asset. So it's been very much sort of internal, if you like, in terms of my immediate experience of it and the impact on the sector. I'm not sure if you have anything to add to that, Rachel. Yeah, I think there's certainly a feeling amongst some people that that COP26 did leave out a proper discussion of how an international carbon tax or cost would operate with a proper border adjustment mechanism, allowing or at least mandating countries to internalise their carbon consumption as opposed to their emissions. Because, of course, the carbon that we consume in the UK is different from our emissions in the UK, because we might buy a pen 
or some other asset that's made in a different country and the emissions that are used in creating that asset will be calculated um, and costed within that particular country. With a proper border adjustment mechanism, we would have to pay the individual or a border control. There would be a payment internalising, if you like, the cost of the carbon in relation to that particular asset. And there is a feeling that um, COP26 left that out. And yeah, we'll watch this space, I guess, to see whether it comes up again. So Rachel, what you were talking about there touches on the aspect of double counting as well. So do you think that there's more that needs to be done in that area? So organisations aren't able to, you know, greenwash to some degree with double counting? Yeah, I think that there was an agreement, I think, from COP in relation to the UN supported global carbon market that has sought to prevent double counting with respect of countries. So there's an agreement now such that if you have an offset that is created by, say, a nature-based solution overseas, and the, the country, let's say the UK, is buying that offset in the UK, that that's not calculated both in the UK and in that overseas country. That's great. That's really good that that's come from COP. But you're right. It's going to be really difficult to prevent that with respect to just the ordinary company in the UK. And I think that what we're seeing at the moment is actually investors in fund managers really holding their investments to account over this. And I think that it really is the asset owners and the investors in those investment vehicles who are at the moment holding them to account. What we in relation to greenwashing or double counting, what we might see and what we will see in the future with what the FCA and the government plans in terms of the regulation that Nicole has already mentioned, SDR coming into the UK, is more in the way of regulation preventing that and more accountability. So, Nicole, you mentioned earlier about just the impact, you know, whether positive or negative impact on the actual access to finance and how that whole aspect is going to run. You mentioned a really key point there, which has come up again several times during discussion and that about carbon being the fourth metric in that decision making tree, if you like, from a development point of view. I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you, if that's okay. Where have you seen that or where does that kind of confidence in that statement come from? I mean, that statement, um, I think, has come from a sort of a certain part of the market. So that has come from the larger scale developers who've been very sort of, who've really been scrutinizing their own practices mm-hmm. and trying to, as I said, sort of create an environment internally, which they feel addresses that, whilst there's not this sort of common language and, and, and framework around it. You know, the challenge is obviously that that's sort of best practice driven by a certain part of the sector. And, you know, how do we get that to be sort of adopted more widely? And, it, it, you know, it t- takes a certain amount of resource and sort of sophistication, I think, to sort of come up with that yourself. I can totally see how it'd be a real challenge having that adopted more widely without some broader framework and perhaps some sort of policy intervention. It feels like a fundamental change that, doesn't it? It does. It really does. In the whole way that real estate's grown up, you know, having worked in real estate for 20 odd years and cost being king in all aspects of those particular decision making bits around development. So seeing that cost and carbon on a similar, if not the same line, would be a fantastic move forward, I think, for the industry. A lot of what we spoke about there in terms of the way people can access finance, how the decisions are going to be made as to who can access what 
it's complex, right? You know, like, so, well, you guys wouldn't be employed if it wasn't complex, you know, in that market. So if we go back to our thoughts then around the lower end of the market at the moment, is the advice that people need to be able to make the right decisions on getting their reporting and their baseline correct to be able to make the right decisions? Is that too expensive? Is it somewhat unattainable for those smaller people at the moment? Yes and no. Lawyer's answer there. Um, (laughs) It depends. Well, there are a range of providers, I should say, and therefore a range of costs and a range of different services. I would say that using somebody for, say, year one to help you calculate, say, some initial metrics can then allow you in subsequent years, for example, to then collect a little bit more data yourself using appropriate technologies, for example. And so for businesses who are more cost conscious, there are certainly ways of upfronting some cost and then relying on that for future years. However, I think I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be overly positive in that regard because I think what we will see is more and more government policy and law and regulation at asset level that is just going to be more and more expensive and additive to what we have now. So I don't think the cost is something that we can escape. But in a way, we've been benefiting from years and years and years of not really paying the true cost of anything because we haven't really been calculating the cost of carbon properly. So, you know, we've been digging raw materials out of the ground and nobody's been accounting for the consequences of doing that to nature or the climate. And so in a way, it might feel costly, but the reality is we've all received an enormous discount over the years in operating without any sort of a carbon tax or internalizing the negative externalities from our activities around the world. I think that's a really great way of articulating it. Thank you. (laughs) It does also move us on to the next point, if you like, around both locally within the UK and globally, there are going to be greater strength and alignment in the requirements for disclosure and reporting and all of those kind of aspects. And that came out of COP as well, you know, that there were agreements across the piece, really, that everybody was going to aim to pull together around this. What are your thoughts around those particular aspects? I mean, certainly from a regulatory perspective, we've been sort of grappling with the implementation of sort of regulations aimed at addressing that for a while, such as sort of SFDR. And we have, of course, the taxonomy as well. And we've already mentioned the sort of UK versions that are going to be sort of implemented over the coming months. So it's something that our clients have certainly got used to trying to deal with and trying to put something in sort of a reasonably commonly accepted form. You know, it's a common theme that's probably only focused on a certain part of the market. So if you say, does it go far enough? It, it probably doesn't in terms of the broader market. But it's certainly something that's kept us as lawyers incredibly busy probably over the last 18 months. The IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards, did announce the ISSB, the International mm. Sustainability Standards Board. And that's obviously international. And as I think I've mentioned, they're already hoping to harmonise with TCFD and other regimes. And so hopefully via accounting, there will be, well, we, we need to wait and see more of the plans from the ISSB. But, but that sort of global reporting framework, the seeds have been sown there. And it'll be interesting to see what grows forth from those seeds. Excellent. Thank you very much. So the next point to talk about really is around 
technology and innovation and the fact that we are likely to see further disruption and as we all drive towards a low carbon economy. Personally, you know, I've seen lots of different examples of good technology that's making its way into the market that's going to help this. So it'd be good to understand from yourselves, any examples you've seen or, you know, anything that your clients bring into the table saying this is an idea we're going to try or whether it be material process or something else? Obviously, decarbonizing traditional building materials or establishing the use of alternative materials is going to form an important and integral part of a net zero life cycle target for the real estate sector. And in order for it to be effective and in order for the technology to be implemented, you need to have a correct decision making process. In order to do that, you need to be conducting appropriate life cycle assessments because without doing that, planning for building emissions or accounting for them is very difficult. And I think we go back to speaking about data again when we start talking about this, because you need to understand how you're going to integrate these new materials or emergent technologies. And understanding how that works can potentially become more difficult when we consider retrofitting. At the outset of this conversation, Nicole spoke about new builds, and it's almost easier to track that data. When you start talking about retrofitting and retrospective things, it's much more difficult to extract the data and see how that's working. I think it's also a point to make that when we're considering innovation in terms of materials in particular, sustainability also needs to sit alongside other aspects of construction and real estate. So obviously a key theme at the moment that's getting a lot of media attention is safety of buildings, including fire safety. And sometimes the concept of sustainability and safety might appear to be in conflict. So we need to ensure that we can achieve things like building safety and fire safety sustainably and vice versa. The renovation of buildings to make them more sustainable and resilient is obviously preferable over a demolish and rebuild from an embodied carbon perspective. But this also provides us with an opportunity to improve fire resilience in buildings. And that will be a graduated scale depending on the extent and the scale of the refurbishment when we're talking about cost. So where new methods of design and construction are being considered, obviously they need to be tested. We need to ensure that safety concerns are reduced at the same time as embodied carbon is being reduced. And one recent suggestion that I've heard made is that obviously with timber frame and cross laminated timber being generally considered positive for the environment or more positive in terms of materials used and from an embodied carbon perspective, if they are used alone, there may be safety concerns. However, if they're used in conjunction with more traditional materials like steel and concrete, you can reduce safety concern at the same time as reducing your embodied carbon. It's not a perfect situation, but it's a move in the right direction. From my perspective, I've sort of away from sort of materials and just more looking at sort of clients who've tried to sort of be innovative within their own business to solve problems. You know, we have seen examples, particularly in sort of the alternative real estate space of certain operators trying to establish sort of waste energy facilities mm. uh, on site, you know, data center operators who have, you know, acknowledged like, how intensive in terms of energy use they are and try to look at sort of on-site power generation. And so, you know, clients really trying to solve their own issues and address it within their business, um, which I think is quite admirable. And we've also seen, you know, within real estate, it's really been a catalyst for sort of emergent areas of real estate and emergent areas of real assets. So not so much sort of, I guess, if you look at something like vertical farming, that could be a really interesting example of technological innovation 
you know, they have really interesting ESG credentials in terms of use of water recycling and sort of use of LEDs, et cetera. And that's something that, that's really only sort of come to light in the, sort of the last few years. Excellent. Rachel, have you got anything to add on the piece around innovation? Yeah, we've seen innovation in legal documentation, which might not be as interesting to your audience as perhaps the (laughs) nature-based solutions and construction material innovations that Nicole and Rebecca have spoken about. But, you know, green debt finance products have been emerging into the debt markets um, in addition to things like green bonds and that sort of thing. And this is an area of development and innovation within our markets. There is increased focus, of course, from lenders to want to invest and lend money on a green finance basis. And what we have seen really is the market trying to establish itself. So it hasn't settled yet. There's still plenty of discussions that are ongoing between everybody involved in the market. But it's really interesting to see the alignment of values that it can create between, let's say, your real estate fund who might be borrowing the loan, your lender who's lending the money to you. But then in addition, you can then tell your investors who will also be interested in the same sorts of metrics, what you're doing. And you can create through your whole value chain and cycle of your fund an alignment of values there. And that, I think, is one of the interesting things to come out of the product and documentation innovation that we've seen. Mm. And Rachel's kindly reminded me of the point I was going to make, which is in terms of innovation, we're certainly seeing far more sort of emergent sort of real asset classes and clients looking at sort of investing in these sort of unconventional asset classes for re- in real estate terms or real asset terms alongside their traditional portfolios. So we've seen examples of funds that it's perhaps sort of less, not, not particularly unusual, but investing in forestry is a nature-based solution to carbon sequestration alongside their real estate portfolio to ensure that on a portfolio-wide basis, they get to the right point. Um, but also clients sort of being more creative and in committing significant sums to nature-based solutions and looking for sort of innovations in that space, such as sort of seaweed farms and that sort of thing. And these are large institutional clients looking towards that. So again, if you'd said sort of five, 10 years ago, you know, you'll be taking your institutional investment money and putting it in seaweed farms, they probably wouldn't believe you. But it's rapidly becoming a highly investable area, um, even from an institutional perspective. Yeah, and we were recently lucky enough to have the energy economist Dieter Helm come and speak to us. And he made the point that in relation to COP and in relation to lots of businesses, the focus is often the emissions, what we're putting out there. But really, the nature-based solutions is the flip side of that. That's what we're Mm -hmm. taking out. And so his comment to us was, don't forget about that. And actually, with the last COP, with COP26, there was more focus on those nature-based solutions, Mm -hmm. which is great. But there needs to be more because if you only address one side of the coin, you're not going to solve the problem if the other side isn't keeping up. So, Nicole, I couldn't agree with you more. What's really good there is that you identify bits that I always call out from an innovation point of view is that people, when they hear the word innovation, they link it naturally with technology straight away. And so, you know, only really take account of the fact that people are being innovative in technology when that's not correct. You know, people are very innovative through process, design, etc. You know, all of those aspects which feed into us, again, going back to that collaborative piece. One of the areas that I've seen some good innovation in is is around data as well. So recently engaged with an organisation that looks at decision making within buildings. So I think innovation in decision making, whether that be through process or through data interrogation, is the key way for this going forward. So 
energy usage is a great example. So how do you decide on a daily basis how warm to keep a building? You know, because that was, you know, very determinant around how much energy you're going to use. So as a collective of people that run that building, you can't take into account every decision that you need to make, you know, in terms of the people that are in there, the clothing they're likely to be wearing based on the season, the weather it is outside because it's literally just changed, what the current air pressure's like, what the internal, you know, all of those particular decisions which should form part of how much energy you use. But at the moment, they don't. It's just, it's normally down to who's got the loudest voice and feels the coldest in the office, isn't it? Usually a lot of the time, you know, from that point of view, which is, you know, if you just kind of think of the amount of energy that's come off the back of that, it's crazy really i was just going to say off the back of that that is one of the key challenges on an asset level because of course it's all well and good producing a net zero building in terms of the construction process but if it is then used in a non-sustainable way by occupiers it then undermines the overall aim and obviously here we're talking about operational carbon coming from the daily usage of the building through heating lighting cooling etc And what we're starting to see is more tailored drafting in our legal documents around this linked to sustainability. So, for example, it goes back to the collaboration theme, the collaboration between, for example, owners and occupiers, managers and users is now crucial. And we expect to see documentation to evolve to support this necessary collaboration. So, for example, a very simple example, in leases that might amount to increased data sharing requirements, and that will enable landlords to monitor operational sustainability. It's also overcoming some of the perceived and real challenges from sort of a tenant occupier perspective and an owner landlord perspective. So for example, it could be challenging for tenants to implement their own energy efficiency measures due to the drafting constraints within their lease or indeed to switch to renewable sources of electricity, for example. And that will be due to the fact that they don't have full control over the asset that they occupy. On the other hand, landlords also may struggle to obtain buy-in from tenants to propose sustainable solutions. So drafting is having to flex in order to enable and facilitate future collaboration at this level, and also to allow parties who themselves are likely to be in our space, in our commercial real estate space, companies who have their own internal and external reporting requirements, and they need to be able to extract data usage to be able to make those reports. Yeah, it does highlight the challenge again, doesn't it? That, you know, there's so much out there and so much that needs to be done for everybody to one, pull together and two, make sure that we're one, starting in the same place and two, heading in the right direction all the time, keeping on track. It's a really important bit. I'd like to step a little bit away from the kind of very practical conversations around COP26 and explore a little bit more around you as professionals and how you're seeing things change or how that's applying to yourselves. So with all the, for want of a better word or description, hype around decarbonisation, net zero, et cetera, do you think your clients will see it as a fad, a moment in time or Is everybody generally heading in the right direction, do we feel? Or is this a bit of a buzz moment that we're in because there was some noise around COP and we have things like Insulate Britain and Greta Thunberg and all these kind of aspects which are very public? No, I mean, quite the opposite. I think from my perspective, our clients sort of feel quite acutely the fiduciary and in many cases sort of they feel it's a moral responsibility to translate this into sort of 
tangible action. And I think, you know, we're starting to see very, I mean, it's that word sort of tangible pointers as to what we need to do or how we actually put things into action. I've talked about it a lot, but the UK GBC net zero whole life carbon roadmap. And I think one thing that I I found quite encouraging coming out of COP was sort of, I think it was sort of this embodied carbon awareness in terms of our clients really fully understand now the role of both sort of operational and embodied carbon. And you can tell that sort of weighs quite heavily on them. So it's like personal sort of detour, but my dad used to work in commercial real estate facilities management. And he also loves a very cheesy Winston Churchill quote. And he used to tell me sort of, you know, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And, you know, he was referring at the time to sort of, you know, breakout areas and 90s offices and things. But you can tell now that people really, you know, never before has that quote understood to be sort of as true as today. They really understand the role of the built environment and the embodied carbon outlay involved in buildings. And as we dial down the sort of operational the noise around operational carbon over the, you know, the coming decades, um, that's going to become an increasing focus and people are going to be incredibly thoughtful about how they invest their money. We've heard all sorts of things recently um, at conferences. So, you know, car parking developers thinking about how it could be not be a car park in future years, you know, with higher ceiling heights and, you know, the ability to remove the ramp, et cetera, and really looking towards sort of, you know, the heritage buildings of the past to inform what we build in the future. And for me, that's quite a, you know, a pivotal moment that sort of really feeling that weight of responsibility in terms of, you know, our clients being quite sort of powerful influences of the built environment. Rachel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree with Nicole. I really feel our clients think this is the moment for action. But in addition to that, I think that they know, just as we do, that the next 10 years are the critical 10 years. And even for some laggards, of which we might not have actually spoken to them yet, for example, and even if there are some laggards out there, um, they needed to be funded by investors and their investors are not going to take their own foot off the gas. And in addition to that, we will see more in the way of policy and regulation and legislation coming in over the next 10 years that will force people to act for the real laggards that aren't actually acting at the moment. So definitely not a flashpoint in time. In terms of my own particular practice area, finance, what if we fast forward 10 years, I'd hope that I'm no longer talking about green finance or sustainability linked finance. I'm just talking about finance because it will become so embedded that it isn't something that we are talking to clients about because it's a natural feature of the deals that they're doing. So for green to be lost off it and it just to become an integral part of the finance journey and conversation, that's a really interesting point. What are your thoughts, Rebecca? Um, I think that it speaks volumes to the fact that this isn't just a flash in the pan moment in time, that our planning framework is starting to reflect requirements for greater sustainability. So there are signs that planning officials are starting to give greater weight to carbon footprint of buildings. And that's actually something that we're starting to track internally here at McFarland's. I think people will be aware of the recent planning refusal of the Tulip building. And interestingly, when you read that planning refusal, it includes reference to carbon neutrality. It was thought that a building of that sort of height, size and impact should at least be carbon neutral and that the demolition of the existing building represented a significant cost in terms of embodied carbon. And this is a much broader framework that our clients are operating within rather than considering themselves. We're now looking at the wider legal and statutory frameworks that exist. And planning policy exists at both national and local level. And the national planning policy framework supports a transition to low carbon future 
and conversion of buildings. This is something that is fundamentally being embedded into process and procedure. So it is not simply a moment in time that everybody can give lip service to and then move on. Even more recently, there have been rumblings in the press about Marks and Spencer, who has been criticised in the press over the demolition of its flagship Oxford Street store and the replacement with a new structure. And it's this kind of conversation that is happening more broadly and more publicly that is going to force people and incentivize our clients to do more in this space. Of course, it's not as simple as simply submitting an application for net zero housing um, or other buildings and expecting that application to be rubber stamped. Mm. Although it's an increasingly important consideration, we also have to remember it sits alongside other existing requirements, not only planning, mm. but our clients are thinking about you know, cost and viability as well. So other targets, wider planning strategy, affordable housing targets, all of these things are going to inform decisions, but it's going to be an inescapable fact that sustainability is there on the table. Yeah, I think there's some really good points, so especially around the planning reforms. My previous role was in environmental planning, so it was very much dealing with all of those aspects that you know, go into any piece of major infrastructure. And one of the key reforms being that organisations at a certain threshold will have to show a 20% biodiversity net gain going forward, you know, rather than any kind of lip service being paid to that, which again, you know, speaks to the nature-based solutions. And, and again, hopefully demonstrates to some degree that we are all heading in the right direction. So Rebecca, from your own professional practice point of view, how is it for you? What areas do you feel you have most ability to influence? Um, I think probably the boring bit, or most of your listeners would consider it to be the boring bit. So the actual black and white drafting of documents to reflect these sort of sustainability issues. So for example, when we're considering recycling, reuse and refurbishment. When you consider that in the context of traditional drafting, our traditional drafting of documents is going to have to flex to enable sustainability to be achieved. It's quite common to see a clause in a development agreement or a lease that requires new materials to be used in construction or when works are retrospectively carried out to a space. Obviously, that kind of drafting cuts across the concepts of sustainability because you may not feel that it's appropriate to always use new materials. And it's that kind of granular level of change and drafting change and approach that is going to be the thing that I'm going to see most of at the coalface. Excellent. Same question to you, Nicole. I think from my perspective, it will be, I mean, a key thing coming out of COP as well is scrutiny and the ability for our clients or helping our clients and their their investment products sort of stand up to scrutiny. So this has been a particular theme as we've gone through the process of, you know, categorizing investment products from an SFDR perspective, helping them to really think what it means to have a product promoting environmental sustainability characteristics or, or being an impact fund and in not using those terms lightly really helping them to think it through and how that sort of its impact upon its investment process and sort of all facets of its business really so it's really you know assisting clients with that sort of scrutiny from regulators from investors and, and helping themselves through that thought process great thank you rachel same question to you Yeah, I think in the past, lawyers have had a bad reputation for being the people that say no to things. And I think that they have come under some criticism for actually preventing change. And I think that the modern lawyer is the lawyer that helps 
accelerate change for the positive. And I hope that I and all of us on this call and just the legal profession helps transition and helps enable change going forwards in this particular area. Great. Thank you very much. I guess to close out, I'll ask a question about the future to some degree. So COP27 is going to take place within a year now. So it'll be less than 12 months away. So I feel that some good stuff's come out of COP26. As we've discussed, some bits could have gone further, but I think that will always be the case. But what would you want to see being discussed or being agreed at COP27? Rachel, I'll come to you first on that one. Yeah, I think... um... To start is it, it will be great if at COP27 people can evidence that they have stuck to the commitments that they made at COP26. So, so actually, instead of necessarily being additive, as we've seen from past COPs, nations and governments haven't actually stuck to commitments because, of course, they're non-legally binding. And so sort of wish number one is actually that people, to the extent that they can, and nations will stick to the commitments that they've made, that there is this expectation that the NDCs, the nationally defined contributions, will be re- visited every year. And so actually, I think that that will happen because each year they'll be revisited. And what comes with that probably is an expectation of some sort of accountability as to what they have previously agreed and the progress that they've made within the year. I will say that a year is actually a short amount of time Mm -hmm. to actually affect change, particularly when nations have to go back to governments and pass law. And and that really does take a long time. So I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's very difficult, but we also don't have the time. So sort of need to balance those things at the same time. We've already talked about nature-based solutions, but I hope there is even more of an emphasis from COP26 to COP27 and beyond on nature-based solutions and a proper globally agreed carbon tax with a border adjustment as well is my hope. But again, that might not be COP27. It might be a future COP. But I think the conversations might at least accelerate at the next COP. I think sort of more generally, there's been various discussion in the press about whether the real estate industry has participated to a sufficient degree in COP, given its role and the role of the built environment in sort of the carbon challenge. And I think we've seen some really good engagement from our client groups, but it'd be great to see sort of the level of discussion that centres around the built environment and the, the number of parties from all parts of the real estate sector really sort of expanding by the time of the next COP. I mean, I know there's been sort of various sort of headlines in the sort of the real estate press and sort of challenging whether um, there really has been enough of a discussion and enough engagement from the property industry. Rebecca, have you got anything to add around what you'd like to see next year? I think just going to Rachel's point of accountability, in order to have that, we're going to have to have a much higher degree of transparency. And that will hopefully flow from this annual reporting back, the increased reporting requirements. And just more generally speaking, due to the voluntary nature of this so far, support between nations actually coming to the forefront and for money to come forward, because ultimately it does come down to that and money speaks volumes. So the financing that needs to be come forward and has been pledged, it will be interesting to see whether or not that is followed through on this occasion since it hasn't previously or has been criticised for not previously coming forward. Okay, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much to all three of you for your time. It's really appreciated and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you again next time on Carbon Times.